0: Over the last 20 years, Paul Dixon and I become very close friends. We traveled and fished some Atlantis locations together, catching fish most people only read about. In 2021, when the American Museum of Fly Fishing bestowed the Isaac Walton Award to Dixon, it confirmed this man's legendary impact on striped bass of the Northeast, conservation and his fundraising efforts. We hope you enjoy his extensive story.
1: We broke everything, we broke lines, we broke hooks, we broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages, we broke
0: the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way so I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut
2: got him on, all right, now we're gonna teach him a lesson.
1: I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet.
0: And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out. Thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, Wow, what a ride!
1: (laughs) There's something fishy going on here.
0: Um, Paul, welcome to the Mill House. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Um, you know, I've heard of your name well before I met you, uh, and Your legacy uh, expands from the Northeast down into the Keys, what you've done with the bass world. Um, It's very prolific. Uh, You had a TV show. You were good friends with Lefty. You're you're in Walker's K. And and I think uh, the conservationist uh, side of you and your fundraising ability. I mean, at the BTT fundraiser in New York, you single-handedly got – a million dollars raised that night and I think uh, over the course of your life uh, what was very prolific last year is that you were awarded these Isaac Walton uh, award from the American Museum of Fly Fishing you know that really culminates that award of your significant uh, f- footprint on the world of fishing how did you feel about all that? Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm proud
1: that, you know, it's all worked out this way. The, um, you know, I started with BTT when they, their inception, because Mm -hmm. I ended up being invited down to the Ocean Reef Club to fish, you know, to guide. And, uh, and so... One day they're saying, hey, we're starting this organization, BTT, and, you know, all the guys should come to this. And so I went to it, and I was blown away because I walked in that room, and there was Billy and Stu Apt, and Steve Huff, and all my idols, these guys that I'd heard about for years and everything. And it was like, you know, once they started talking about what they were trying to accomplish and everything else, I thought, man... I'm on board. I want to do this. And a lot of it was sort of selfish reasons because they were talking about, you know, tagging Tarpon and seeing where they're going. And I was like, I want to know that. (laughs) So I tagged the first Tarpon with Tom Davidson that they put a telemetry a tag and they could tag it, you know. And that tag at the time was scared shitless. Uh, Steve Vanini and and Tom uh, Davidson had caught this fish and they called me. So I went over and we assisted everything else. But I thought, man, if we lose this tag at $8,000, it's the only one they had and I'm trying to stick it, you know. I'm a
0: nerve wracking. Yeah.
1: So, uh, so anyway, and then, you know, years later, uh, 10 years ago, they asked me if. I would, you know, do something in New York. And, and, and I think that what people don't understand, because I heard a comment this year like, what's New York, you know, raising money for bonefish and this and that. But the relationship between the, let's say the financiers and everything of New York and Florida goes way back. Because if you look at Demick, the book of the tarpon, he was Jay Gould's partner. And Jay Gould cornered the gold market, and so he made a lot of money. And he wanted to come to Florida to explore the Everglades and shoot pictures and write about it and everything else. Even over at uh, Bahia Honda, there was an old club there, you know. And if you look at those old pictures at the turn of the century, they're all the New York financiers or the guys that that could afford the time to, you know, go sporting, you know, so the sportsmen of the era. And so there's always been this relationship. And it's, you know, the people up there, they love the, you know, the tabone fish. They love to fly fish and everything else. So when Tom Davidson came to me at one of the symposiums 10 years ago and said, could we do something in New York? You know, I was actually sitting with Bob Rich at a table. It was taking place at the IGFA. And I turned around to Bubba and I said, Bubba, they want me to do something in New York. And uh, and he turned around and he said, Well, if you need any help, I'll be there for you. You know, and I thought, Wow, that's that's great. So when I got back, I I thought, okay, I just need to find the entertainment, and then I'll call my friends and see if they'll, you know, help me do this. So I called Lefty and I called Tom Brokaw, who was a good friend and that I knew from Orvis in the '80s and everything, and said, "Would you guys do this?" and uh, and they said yes. And then I called you, you know, said, "Would would you MC this thing?" You know, right? And so uh, so it started, and it was sold out. You know, so we had to get a. i called all my friends you know uh rick bannerow from the angler's club and john fisher from the urban angler and and uh cd clark for graphics and tried to strategically put some people together that would make this committee john aplinapp got involved with this from walkers you sure. know. and so we for- formed a committee and uh and the thing just grew and it just grew and grew and got more support and and everybody stepped up and and this year is the 10th year it happened we finally broke that million dollar you know yeah so it was that's pretty cool
2: how much money did you have you raised throughout the years throughout those 10 years wow eight million
1: no, no, because nothing. we
2: never made, you know, a million.
0: This
1: is the first year. You know, probably, I don't know, three or four million dollars. Yeah, because you, you were know? averaging around 500000 yeah. 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 a it, year, it, I think. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the figure is, yeah. you know. But it's
0: a lot, a you lot know. A lot of money, yeah. Uh, uh, and it's the power of brotherhood and the, and the power of passion. But absolutely. It's, that's what it's all about. And we'll get into the striper uh, conservation aspect here in a little bit. But let's go back. Um, when you answer the phone, you know, yo, dude, you know. Uh, you're like the the great Lebowski. You know. <laughs> where does that come from? Uh your roots in California?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, and it was always used. I grew up in Southern California, Newport Beach, you know. And and it's funny because I listened to some of the guys in your podcast talking about Florida and the young days here and how it was and everything else. And I saw the exact same thing in, in California where I grew up. At the time there was no development you know there was owned the largest land grant in California was the Irvine Ranch and it wasn't developed and my parents my dad was in the air force in the in the 60s and then when Kennedy said we're going to the moon they he got a job at North American Aviation it was in southern California we moved to Newport Beach and the hills and the everything behind me there were no houses the back bay was this the one of the last estuaries in california that's had stripers in it from original stocking you know it just had all this life you know so you know for me uh you know it was one of those things that you know i just loved it i just loved the the outdoors i was out there diving in you know whatever tide
0: pools pulling abalone off rocks you know anything and uh, Was this a, an extension of your father's passion, or did you have any buddies that were doing that? How did a, a young kid in California all of a sudden just start doing all that stuff? How were you influenced?
1: Well, it's sort of funny, but my family... Uh, was huge fisherman. My grandfather at the turn of the century left, he worked for Henry Ford and he swept his floors and Henry Ford when he was 18 years old turned around to my grandfather and said Jesse what are you going to do with your life? And so he said I want to go sell your cars sir, out west. And so we had the first Ford dealership in 1915 and and he did very well. Well his passion was fishing and so he, he got into it, he fished with Zane Gray, he fished with Bing Crosby, and it was a big deal in his family. I remember my grandmother, I never knew my grandfather, but at my grandmother's house, there was just all these old thousands of old reels and rods, and I mean the nickels, Silver, Von Hoff, you know, I mean, I wanted those. And she had promised me my whole growing up is, you know, whatever, you know, those are going to be yours.
0: Did you ever get them?
1: No. (laughs) she she had a little drinking problem (laughs) and she had a painter over one day and he talked her out of him said i'll get rid of all that equipment she saved me one and there's a story behind that one too but she saved me one rod and that was that but on the on the same side my father's side uh My grandmother, when when she died, was 101 years old. And I remember talking to her, they came west, when she, she told me that she remembers shooting Indians out of the, the train that was bringing them west. The guys would roll down the window, and they'd see an Indian, and they'd all start shooting at them. You know, She remembers when Chief Joseph looking, she was three years old and looking over a cliff, in, uh, the, the family became huge loggers up in Hood's Canal in Oregon, and the Reed family. And she remembers when they would sh- uh, see the Indians you know, it, uh, below the, the surf or whatever, and little girl, and two days later, the cavalry came in chasing the Indians, and that was Chief Joseph trying to flee the country. So they had a 100,000-acre reserve in Oregon, and my dad, was as a young kid, loved, you know, going there, and they taught him to hunt and fish. So he had a passion for it. So growing up, we every weekend, We were on the half-day boat or head boats, you know, and I just took to it. My mother's the one that first gave me a little drop line when I was three years old, and I still have that picture of a Balboa dock in Newport, and I would never leave that dock. She would drop me. She didn't need a babysitter. I would be down there at 6 o'clock in the morning till it was dark, you know, trying to catch stuff and grab you know, crabs off the side and, you know, and then it just, you know, it went on and on, you know? Right.
0: Well, I had a, a presence in, in Newport beach area. Uh, when I got hurt in 1981, I'd broken my neck, my back and my leg. So I went to um, Marguerite street. Um, and uh, what was that little town? Coast of Costa. Mesa. Coast. Yes. I was there. And I would, uh, I had a spinning rod with a barrel sinker and a lefty deceiver. And I was on crutches and I had a brace and a, and a um you know from my neck down to my waist because of my broken neck and my broken back and I'd never seen a saltwater fish before and I'd take my crutches and I'd crutch down to the end of the pier in in, uh, in Newport and I would throw this barrel sinker with a spinning rod and catch benita yep right when they'd come in yeah and then when I felt better and got better I would go out on a half day boat like you were just talking or a full day boat out to Catalina and everybody's fishing with bait and they're chumming everything up and I was on the on the bow of that boat, throwing my fly rod, trying to catch these Bonita. So it's like we go, we both go back to the same, you know, growing pains in Southern California.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, Andy, because uh, you you see the changes, you know, and I spent, you know, my time in California, you know, was almost equal to the time that I came East and you know and so hearing these other guys talking about how it used to be and how it used to be there you know it's the same thing the development finally was the Irvine company built everything the houses I hunted jackrabbits with bow and arrow off these cliffs you know I mean that was my favorite thing to do was go out and look for jackrabbits (laughs) you know so uh you know but it all got developed you know you saw it and that's why I I met my ex-wife on a blind date in London, and, uh, and her family had a place on the east end of Long Island. And when I came out there and saw it, you know, you could walk out your back door. It was sort of like California was 25 years earlier, you know, and you could hunt or you could fish, and it was all right there. You know, by that time, California... You know, it was toast. It was, was, now it's, if it wasn't for Camp Pendleton, you know, below, uh, you know, uh, Laguna Beach, all the way to San Diego area. Yeah, it'd all be developed, you know. Right. So, you know, it's just development annihilated everything that was great about the...
2: What were you catching during those early years? Were you tuna fishing, yellowtail fishing, or just anything that that bit your line you know
1: uh the the prime thing was when i when i finally started in 71 i learned to fly fish and then i started catching bonita and everything else but in the early days the the target species were you know yellowtail was a big one the uh uh, bonita was another one corbina you know there's there were corbina but most of the half day boats and stuff like that you know you're looking we caught black sea bass which are now endangered you can't even touch the things you know uh but a lot of Pacific Barracuda, you know, and we ate everything. And the funny thing was, is I remember uh, there was this guy on the half day boat that uh, his name was Pineapple Bill. And so he was a great fisherman, but he was a full blooded Hawaiian. And we would keep the fish and he would give us this sauce and it was his secret sauce. And it's like, okay, you get a jar for this and a jar for meat, you know, and we'd take it home and I'd soak the fish and it made everything you know just like wow everybody that would eat it say what is this you know well it ended up that he gave me the recipe finally after years of getting to know well it was teriyaki You know, and nobody (laughs) knew what teriyaki was, you know. But all those fish that people would, you know, he'd take all the bonita and everybody would say, oh, you can't eat those things. Throw them away. You know, well, he'd oh, I'll take them. You know, well, you throw that in the teriyaki. (laughs) I tell you
0: what, I used to bring the uh, bonita back and cut the bloodline down the middle and uh, and fry them with some butter, Um, and they were awesome. Yeah. But they, everybody thought that since it was such a red meat, it was unedible.
1: Yeah, well, I can tell you about the, uh, I had friends that were running tuna boats out of San Diego, and they were actually uh, for albacore. And you would come back to the dock, and the albacore were long fin, and they'd usually trade them for cans. That was the deal. Sure. You know, the recreational guys. These guys would sell them directly to the canners, you know. And off to the side would be these huge fish sitting there. And I'd ask them, I'd say, what the hell are those things, you know? And they'd say, oh, those are horse mackerel i say horse mackerel they look like giant tuna they said yeah they call them bluefin tuna but they're worthless you know we we they they pay us like 30 cents or whatever for cat food and i just gotten back from overseas you know and i had sushi and i turn around to my friends and i tell them i said you know you guys that stuff they get a fortune for it in japan and you know in the orient you know so you know, we should, let me... So I pick up the phone, Yellow Pages in those days, and I find Japantown in San Diego. I call this guy, and I said, Hey, do you buy tuna? He goes, Tuna? You got tuna? You come over, I take tuna. So I go over there.
2: <laughs> so, that was so good. Yeah. So,
1: so I go over there, and we, we got three of these things, you know. And and he looks in the back of the truck, and he looks, and he says, How much you want? I said, How much you... He goes, Oh... I'll tell you what, I give you three hundred apiece, and we had just paid twenty dollars for them, and we're like, you know, twenty years old or what? And I'm like, dudes,
2: <laughs> dude, <laughs> Dudes.
1: So anyway, so with you know, it's just one of those seeing, seeing the evolution. And I guess the original thing since we're back to dude is I was a big surfer in California. You know, I mean, that was my other passion was surfing and and uh, fishing. And, uh, and I made surfboards, and I went to Hawaii and everything else. Well, it, dude sort of started in the surf culture of sure. California. But I thought, you know, that's just stupid, you know. So me and my friends would make a spoof on it, you know. It's like, hey, dude, you know. And, and it stuck and with and you. It <laughs> got, you know, in it just, 2022. But it, it was a joke, you know. <laughs> and, and it still and is. it stuck, you know. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh that
0: is hilarious um one of the great books if anybody's interested is zayden gray's book uh, swordfish and tuna and he speaks in the book about not only the uh the tune up in gloucester's area uh but the swordfish uh near catalina yeah did you ever experience that
1: you know the, the, we would run across them here and there and i got one swordfish story that you know uh we'd see him you know but by that time they're using stick boats to get them mm-hmm. and so one Stick day, boats, meaning they'd spear, they'd spear them. Spear them, yeah. you know, and they had the long platform on the front. And one day, a friend of mine, he had a, uh, his father had a 52-foot Pacifica, and we'd go out tuna fishing and everything. We're coming back, and we see this big swordfish on the surface just sunning himself. Spinning. It's like, oh, my God, get the thing. And we're running. So we slow down. We get the gear out, and we circle around, and we're just coming in front of this. And out of the corner of our eye, we see this stick boat. And it's like, gee, and the guy comes right in front of us, goes up in front, and sticks this fish. And we're like, wow. Well, that, we, but we decided, let's watch and see what, you know. So we sat there for like an hour and a half as he fought this thing and traveled around with the barrels and the whole thing. And when he brought it up, that fish was probably 600 to 700 pounds. And I don't think I've ever seen a swordfish since then that was that size. But... uh I didn't, you know, that's what my my grandfather was after. In his day, the swordfish was the the holy grail, the the one to catch. That's what everybody wanted because... Not only was it a trophy; he belonged to the Catalina Tuna Club and to the Balboa Island, you know, uh, Tuna Club and all that. And they were using linen lines, right? You
2: know, so he was using rod and reel; he wasn't spearing them. No, yeah, like was, and that's the whole Zane Gray story right. in that book, uh, Swordfish and Tuna. It's a fascinating to read. Yeah. Um, so they would get in front of those sunning swordfish yeah. when they're finning on the surface. They'd get in front and throw bait out there.
1: No, they they would come, but the the stickers, the boat stickers. Is that what you're talking? No, about? I'm
2: talking about what your grandfather and Zane Gray. Yeah, did. yeah.
1: So what they would do is they'd try to you know toss a bait or or troll a bait in front of them. You know, get something out. You know, a lot of the stuff was bridled. You know, they'd catch right. bait and then they'd try to you know troll them. The bait at the time usually that they were using was Benita. Right. You know, so and they you know as they they come to find out, and I found this out with bass too. You know, is that. The, the tuna and the swordfish have a tendency to come up and sun themselves or to frolic on the surface and everything at slack tides. And it's the same thing with bass. You know, that's, uh, when I'm looking for, you know, big bass and everything else, I'm looking not only for moon phase, but I'm looking for the the tide that sort of brings the big fish that are normally out fighting current right. and hunting at slack tide, and now they're coming up and they're resting. Do
0: you find that with tarpon too sometimes? I think. You know, I think so. Yeah, I slack think tide, so. You find you them know, floating a little bit better? Yeah.
2: So know. those big bass float like laid up fish. They do. You really? know
1: they'll they they they'll come up at certain times and everything you know that's why you know i just had somebody turn around and they i'm actually having a, a you know like machine you know problems or whatever and and i had these guys that say you know hey you know what uh what we want to know how you're catching these big bass and everything else and tell us explain us how your machine and everything comes in and what you're using and everything else <laughs> i'm like machine. I don't use a machine, you know, I, and I just never did, you know, even GPS and all that shit. I didn't have GPS when I started, you know, I would do dead reckoning. I, you know, it's like 15 minutes to this island this fast and this, you you know, heading, you know, and that's how I did it, you know, and it's the same thing, uh, you know, even down here in the early days, you know, it, it was, I didn't really have GPS. I didn't use it, you know. I just went and like, okay, there looks like a good spot, you know. And, and to me, what I wanted to find out was uh, what are the fish's habits and why are they doing this, you know, where, where should they be, you know. And, and to me, uh, you know, one of the main things is hydrology. If you don't understand how much the moon plays in, in fisheries, and how the hydrology of your area works, then you're sort of missing it. So I really don't use machines. I, I use them down here more than anything for water temperature. Mm-hmm. You know, the same thing up north. I want to know if there's little breaks of water where they may be, where it's too warm and the stripers won't be there. Not like here where it's too cold or something.
0: Right. Um How did you, you know, I don't know if you have any stories to wrap up California, but I'd like to ask you how you ended up in uh, the Northeast, obviously, with your wife that you met in London. So that introduced you to that fishery up there. So when I when
1: I first came out here or to not here but you know to the northeast I was immediately I, I had been, I grew up in California thinking that New York was an industrial wasteland and why would anybody want to live there but when I saw the East End of Long Island and uh, and Montauk I was blown away how beautiful it was and here is this mythical that my whole life. You know, that striped bass was like, you know, the Holy Grail. It was like, wow, now there's a fish I want to catch. You know, I'd read Outdoor Life and see a picture of a striper or something, you know, and... Then it was like, wow, I gotta, you know. And I tried it in California. When I was in high school, a guy came in and, and said, I got stripers today. And I and I made friends with this. I'd always see a fly rod, or a, a rod in his car. And I'm like, that guy's fishing, you know. I gotta go talk to him. And he's like, yeah, I'm catching stripers in back bay. I'm like, show me, you know, let's yeah, right. go together. Let, I wanna fish with you, you know.
0: You know, as you make mention of reading Outdoor Life, um, I've got a note here, I don't know where it came from, from, from you or somebody, where in school, one of the teachers called your mom and says, Paul's not gonna turn out to be anything. He keeps reading Outdoor Life.
1: Yeah, they, she sent me home. She sent me home in a, a note and called my mom. And tell me, know,
0: th- tell me how that transpired. How'd she catch you? What were you, you know,
1: I had it in a notebook. I thought I was hiding it, you know, <laughs> and, and I was terrible. I, you know, I was dyslexic as a child, you know, and my mom, I, I went and saw people. They were just finding out about dyslexia and so forth. I had learning disabilities, you know, and everything else, but I was a voracious reader. And especially for things that I was interested in and boy, between hunting and fishing, that's all I wanted to do, you know. So so she sends me home, you know, and and says, You gotta, you know, you're out. How'd you she know?
0: catch you? Tell me that.
1: Well she came up behind me. <laughs> she started wandering the room and I thought it was good. Like do this aside. So I was holding a pencil, you know, like, yeah, I'm doing it and I'm reading everything else. And she grabs the magazine and pulls it up and said, What's this? And I just froze and she said, you know, this is it. I've had enough of you and uh, I'm calling your mom and and go to the principal's office, you're going home. And I was like, oh, <laughs> 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 so, so I did. And, and my mom's like, you can't do that anymore. And, uh, you know, so, and, and years later before my mom died she actually turned around and she said, you know I wish I could call that Mrs. Miguel Fresh and show her, you know, what you've, what
0: you've done. You know, that's awesome. Yeah, so it was pretty cool how it turned out. But right. But so you were reading about bass in the Outdoor Life magazine. Right. Now you're in in the, in the Northeast and it's so, now obvious yeah you're going to be fishing for them soon right
1: so so i get out there i see this thing and i thought oh my god this is great so i get my fly rod but then i'm a i'm a addicted fly fisherman i started in idaho when i was 16 years old and and i'm into it you know so i go out and i'm everywhere trying to find a striper and i are just not there did you have know?
2: access to a boat or are you just going down the shore my, my
1: father-in-law had a boat but i started really from shore you know and uh and once once we got married the early days we weren't married yet and everything else and and so uh i started from shore and i befriended some surf casters and some guys some early guys that were actually fly fishing in long island you know and so uh so we just started looking around then I find out that there's a moratorium on stripers because there is none. You know, in 1985 they finally put a moratorium on the striped bass because they'd crushed them for years. You know, and they almost just evaporated, gone between the commercial and re- mostly commercial, but the recreational angler.
0: Everybody so, was killing them.
1: Everybody. So, uh, so they had a moratorium on them. So in the early days, I never saw one. You know, but you know, it's sort of funny because you know everybody the, the sort of how the flats you know came about and everything else everybody you know would said oh you gotta you know fish stripers at night 60 feet of water they're night critters you gotta and so you know we were sort of partying at night <laughs> you were busy <laughs> <laughs> so you know you'd go out in the day and oh, i think i'll go down by the beach and look and whatever you know and they they live down in southampton and shinnecock canal and shinnecock has these unbelievable flats you know white sandy flats and everything else so i'd go down there and i wasn't you know really expecting to see but i just want to go fishing and then you'd start seeing a few you know it's like holy shit, is that a f- that's a striper, you know, and in the early days, mostly bluefish and stuff, and then by the time I, I started working for us because I wanted to get into the fly fishing business, you know, before that, I'd sort of come from California, and we did a lot of different things, but you know i wanted to start fly fishing you know or get in the business so i thought the best way that i could do that is if i could get a job part time at orvis and and get in the industry some way so i did i ended up you know running the orvis fly fishing department in new york city and uh and so I would go back and forth, you know, through the Hamptons and and gradually the striper all of a sudden really started coming out. And my goal was is that I wanted to, you know, either start a lodge someplace or, you know, I wanted to maybe maybe Canada for Atlantic salmon or we could have a lodge in Alaska or, you know, all these things. And then the more that the saltwater fly fishing, you know, started exploding and growing, you know, and, and in those days there was, there really wasn't any salt. We started with Randy Carlson. I started the first Orvis saltwater fly fishing schools and that was in the eighties at some time. And we started teaching classes on it and everything else by the time he's the one randy that uh said you should do a store you know you're always out in the hamptons why don't you do a store out there and you know start and so i did you know in 1993 or whatever i started a store and i thought you know i don't want to be stuck in a store the whole
0: time i did you hate it initially or right away it was it was it was a Probably a really interesting concept. Uh, I'll have my own store. I can sell. But how long after that did you, all of a sudden you realize this is not going to work?
1: Well, it's pretty early on. I would already worked retail, you know, mm-hmm. with uh, at Orvis and everything else. But really, all I wanted to do was fish. But it was great because, it, and it it really, you know, it was probably one of the wisest decisions I ever made was working for Orvis in that store because I met everybody right. that fly fished in New York so it you know from Jimmy Buffett to you name them all the way down the line every CEO of Morgan Stanley of of all these firms they all fly fished and if they fly fished they came into Orvis you know and so when I started the store I thought okay this will be great in the Hamptons but you know, at least I won't have to commute to the city, and it, but it was still retail, right? And so I decided early on, actually, when I was just in the process of putting it all together, I'm going to get my guide's license, and this way, my wife can't, you know, say that you can't go fishing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> your, your office was just uh moved to the shallow water of the Hamptons,
2: yeah. So, when you first got started, were you in a bay boat chasing those blitzes, or did you? Bring a skiff up there and you started pulling the flats and getting your no, program no there, there was
1: actually a guy that had brought skiffs there the uh jeff northrup and jeff was over in connecticut and he was selling skiffs you know and jeff didn't have really the water quality of the flats over in that end of the thing and he would do a little or you know whatever but jeff was the first one to bring the the skiffs up and everything so i ended up my friend and i james kang ended up like, we got to do this, let's, let's buy skiffs, you know? So we went to Jeff and Jeff sold us the first two skiffs, you know, and James guided for me and I started the store and we started pulling around and, uh, and started looking, you know, and that's just at the time that I met John Applenap, you know, comes rolling into the store. You know, so uh, and he was, you know, his family was Walkers K, and that I think it was the first or I think it was the first year that we started and uh and i'll never forget it because they pulled in across the way and they open up and john's got jack uh his mate on the sea lion Two, which was their boat and uh and jimmy the the captain and the beer cans come rolling out of the car and (laughs) rolling down the street the party has just arrived And 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 they walk in and they're all in shorts and and we start talking and everything else and and he says, "I'm I'm getting a skiff too, you know. It should be, you know, whatever we're using this right now." And and uh, and as he's leaving, he turns around and he says, uh, "You know, I'm going to become your newest best friend." And I was like, "Oh, okay, you know." And Jack, the the who's a card and a half, as he's walking out, John's walking out with you. He turns around, and he says, "He's not kidding." <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, so and then
1: John and I started this relationship. I'd get. Ten phone calls a day from John. Finally, my wife's like, "Look, it. Can you you tell John and your girlfriend not to call during dinner?" <laughs> you know. But John was, you know, he was uh, running his dad's company, and and so he was not out there all the time. You know, he'd come out on weekends and everything, but he'd live vicariously when he was in his office. It's like, "How's it going out there? You catching them?" You
0: know, right? Uh, so. Well that's been that's a still uh one of your longest best friends. Yeah. Uh and you know in during those number of years tell me about the relationship of Walker's Flip uh Walker's K Chronicles and John Appleton. App. So um John and I became friends, and and weirdly enough, we had
1: uh, two kids who were almost born on the same days, you know, same ages, same days, and everything else, and so so we started going to walkers, you know, and we did, at the time, there was the Sea Lion 5 that supported the island infrastructure with, you know, and it was basically an old... um, oil rig boat you know Mm -hmm. but it had a 70 foot back end wooden back end and it was a chugger it only went five knots or whatever but we would put two skiffs on the back or tow two and put one on the back we'd take three skiffs we'd all get together the the girls would stay on the island and we'd go all over the Bahamas and we'd sit there and say okay let's go look at this you know, this looks interesting. So we'd go over and we'd, you know, choose our destinations and putter around at night and arrive at the destination and go explore and look. And this was long before the days of, you know, the Pelican Bay and North Riding Point and all those places hadn't been built yet. So it was a real magical time. It was a real party time. For sure. But, but it was a... It was a real great time. It was a great time. Well, you
0: know, you're, you're speaking about uh being one of the first guys chasing bass um striped bass with flat skiffs and one of the first guys uh doing a lot of you know exploratory stuff over in the bahamas i mean your your fishing eyes have really seen a lot of great stuff
1: yeah it's been i've been fortunate you know i mean i i tell you i'm the luckiest guy alive you know i, I never expected to make it past 30 years old to tell you the truth you know because of past things but you know the uh, you know, it was just uh, I, I decided to do something, and and it just worked out. You know, and like I said, it's like the evolution of of working at Orvis and meeting everybody. You know, the first person when I opened my store that sent me a letter of congratulations was bob rubin you know at the time he was secretary of the treasury when i first met him he was uh working he was the chairman of goldman sachs you know and bob wanted i sold him his first fly rod but all these guys and and that i had met for that and then when i started guiding you know everybody thought oh, i i want to sight fish i got to go to the florida keys i got to go to the bahamas when they found out that it was in their back door it just exploded you know and so i started buying more boats and hiring and training more guides and and it just it caught on like wildfire you know
0: tell me what what it looked like out there in those early years with the flat skiff and pulling the shallow flats it was
1: awesome It was unbelievable you know you had the recovery the as i say the greatest conservation success story of all time in this country because the striped bass was gone it was into oblivion but they shut it down and in 10 years mother nature made it came back like you know you couldn't believe it if i went out I used to fish a lot with Bob Popovics, became a really good friend, who's the greatest you know, fly tire alive, in my opinion, mm-hmm. you know, saltwater fly tire. And, uh, and Nick Curcion, who was from the west coast and, and had moved out east. And, and they were all fishing at night and fishing the beaches and everything else. And, and John and I would turn around and say, Bob, you guys gotta come out and you gotta see this. And Bobby at the time was filming. You know, he's like, I got to this camera. I'm going to film some of this stuff. So the early days, if I went out and I caught 10 fish on the flats, 36 to 41 inches, five of those would be that. Because at the time, the size limit was 36 inches. So, you know, you catch 10, you know, five of those fish are going to be between 36, maybe 41 inches. You know, big fish. Big fish. That's, Ever- is that
0: a 20-pound fish? Yeah. Yeah
1: every day you know that's sort of not every day but pretty much that was your thing we caught 20 10 of them a few years later they decide that oh there's so many fish now it's all good we're going to lower the size limit you know and this is where I really got involved with the you know the conservation and fighting these battles and this was 19 god 96 97 you know whatever and so uh So we'd go to these hearings saying, why don't you guys err on the side of caution? You know, why do you want to lower the, you know, give them another year to spawn, you know, why kill them? Oh, there's plenty of fish, there's, and then a few years later, they say, oh, there's so many, let's go to two fish at 28 inches. And because of this, you know, and it was basically the commercial guys wanted more tags and more be able to take more. So they said, yeah, let the wreck guys take two because we get more. So the, they
2: increased the, you know, the kill. And so. So there was not a slot. It was the 26 no. inches to whatever. That's right. So you can kill a 40 pounder. That's right.
1: And And they stacked them like cordwood. And years. obviously
2: those are the fish. Those are the breeding fish. That's
1: right and so for years it was so sad to see at the docks you know the just like cordwood you'd see these barrels filled with these big breeding fish and you know it was like wow you know and the but the blitzes in montauk the stuff that most of the fly fishing and and even on the flats I, my theory is that The the flats fish and the blitz fish that we see in Montauk are the same fish. They're the younger ones that live in the estuaries that, you know, until they get to a certain, size or whatever and then they basically move offshore move into the rips and bigger baits and everything else i've i don't think i've taken and there is areas that you'll take flats fish you know up north where you get the bigger fish will hang and come up on the flats in our areas we're mostly fishing the estuaries i don't think i've ever taken a fish over 25 pounds on the flats in our area you know, I've, I've had them up in Nantucket. I've seen 40 pounders coming down the, you know, the flats, Block Island, a lot of the different areas. You'll see big fish. Do they eat pretty well on the flats? Yeah, well that's pretty
0: the, easy fish to catch.
1: not really. And, and this was, you know, one of the, how to figure it out and everything else. And this is indicative of how I fish now too, is that, you know, uh, everybody talks about tides. You know and tide is just a measurement of height it just gives you here's high tide here's low it's just a measurement i i think that a lot of these fish and especially stripers and everything else it's current and current velocity what turns them on and and i've you know when i uh, talking about these guys that want to write a chapter on how to catch big fish and everything else i learned more from flats fishing and striper behavior and how to feed fish and how they react to you know to things on the flats than than any place and so i could sort of drill in you know to to what they were if it's slack tide, the fish would either sometimes they'd be floating out in the middle or whatever but most likely they're sitting in a trough and you'd see them you know and oh there's a fish you throw out wouldn't pay attention and and bluefish the same thing everybody And,
0: and bonefish too yeah you know, it's because of the tide brings the the bait. That's it brings right. brings the food. And it's you, all a smelling game. And, if there's no current, they can't smell anything. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, that was the key was that it, it was current. You know, so I would go and I could tell this a lot in August when the water gets warm and the and the metabolism is a little different, and everything else. And and I would go out and I would find fish because they'd hold, you know, smaller fish, maybe there's fifteen holding in a trough someplace or you could throw all day long at them, they wouldn't touch it, you know. But you know, as time an hour or two later, all of a sudden, now you got a couple sniff at it, you know, they'll come over and sniff, you know, and then, you know, hour and a half later, boom, every cast, you're getting them. So in the in the summer, I used to tell people, you know, they'd say, oh, should we leave at eight o'clock? I'd say, no, we're gonna leave at 10.45. They're like, 10.45? I said, do you want sight fishing? You know, yeah, well, we can throw at them, but I don't want to go blow the fish out, too. I want them there when they're going to eat. Right. You know? So that's when I would try to time because the current velocity and certain phase in there, they're going to start
2: moving. They're going to start doing their thing. So I was just going to ask, because I've never fished up there. So in the early days when you're pulling the flats, if you catch 10 fish, are you getting 30, 40 shots, 50 yeah. shots? Oh, easy. What's really? it like? What's it like up there now?
0: It's tough.
1: You know, it's uh you know, I'm running like I've never run before. I could leave my dock space or where the launch ramp was and literally go fifty yards and, and there'd be fish. You know i'd go you're right out in front of the beaches every beach had fish on them you know it was biblical you know in a sense it was you know you go and at certain times here comes 30 fish here comes 20 fish here comes you know not the big ones but you know here comes school and you know so you get you had a lot of shots now you know i am going i'm trailering to places and i never trailered you know i'd I'd go to maybe an estuary here an estuary there you know mostly i launched out of three mile harbor in east hampton and you know, go from there. And then I started, the more guides that I trained and everything else, and as it sort of got, you know, somewhat crowded, I wouldn't say crowded, there was only five or six, you know, whatever. But I started thinking, okay, wait a second here. And I had a house that overlooked the bay. And so i see everybody go one way, and I thought, I'm going to go looking back,
0: you know. And so we started, you know. Did people try to follow you, knowing your your fame and, and your... Uh... Abilities to find and catch fish. Did you yeah. ever find that? <laughs> yeah. Kind of like where's Steve Huff going? I'm, sh- I'm gonna follow him. Yeah, Here goes Dixon.
1: <laughs> so in the old days, they uh, they used to memo date boats, you know. So which was they give you the boat manufacturers to give you a boat and everything. So I get uh, Sea Craft, you know, wants me to have a boat and stuff. And there's a local dealer there, and so he's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm into it. So the first I go pick up the boat. And and it's got, like, Hampton watercraft fishing team, and it's all, you know, dolled Fancy'd up and out. fancy. You know, and, and it's funny because uh, I, that was one of the years I started going down to Harker's Island and guiding down there when the Herring Run disappeared up in November for us. And, you know, Bob Clouser, you know, was down there with Lefty and everything else, and Bob's like... So it's you, Captain Billboard, <laughs> <laughs> and to
2: this day I talk to Bob, and he's like Captain Billboard. <laughs> so, uh, were there any confrontations out there? I mean, you hear so many stories in the Keys. Um, you know, once in a while, you know, I don't. You know, it's
1: it's like you know. You'll run into stuff, and especially in Montauk in the fall, because now it's become a real shit show, I hate to say. Cause you know? On
0: a Blitz, everybody races over yeah. and... They're on yeah. top of each other. Yeah, yeah,
1: and it's just, you know, and, and the guides and everybody pretty much cooperate, you know. But it's it's the, now there's crowds of people, and they just don't know, you know. Right. And so they're going to run and gun and charge into the fish. And, and so you try to educate nicely. You might putter up to somebody and say, hey, you know, you'll do much better. But a lot of times you're going to get, you know, get mm-hmm. the, the finger and who are you to tell me, you know. When
2: was the last time you
1: killed a striped bass? god i don't know uh maybe 12 years ago wow. you know i i don't know you know but we could see it happening you know i mean it's just and and the funny the the thing how i i love striper it, you know i mean whatever it's a great eating fish you know so i i get the eating aspect of it but we would go out and get what we call dragger baths and the draggers would go out and and intentionally or not intentionally what they do is a dragger that it drags the bottom for bottom fish it's a bycatch yeah so it was considered so they were allowed to keep 12 stripers as you know bycatch or you know that they could keep well they'd go out and they'd see oh there was a school of big stripers so they'd net them they'd drag through them well they'd take their 12 but there'd be 100, 200, 300 fish floating on the surface and being dragged in the net. And so when I would run across that, then I'd say, geez, you know, do you guys want a bass? They're gonna, you know, they're dead, you know? So I used to take, if I could, you know, found one, I'd take it home or if my client wanted it or whatever. But uh I've never I from day one or whatever, I will not kill a flat spatus. I've killed one in my life. And and you know, is and and what happened was is I remember Lefty always turned around saying, Well, you don't burn your golf balls, do you? Yeah. You know, <laughs> so which is true. You yeah. Know? But um, everybody says, I said, because they become local fish, early on, the fish are migrating and they go up the coast and they, you know, go to Nantucket. It's just like us, you know, You, you summer in the Hamptons, you summer in Nantucket, and you go to the Cape, you know? And that's how it works, you know? They go up and so everybody says, well, how do you know that? And I said, I'll tell you what, years ago, there was this fish and somebody, some kid had snagged it or something, and it had this orange popper on the back of it or you know they use them for snappers and it's just a foam popper mm-hmm. but it was you know on the back of this fish's mm-hmm. you know dorsal so we see him swimming around it's like look at that what is that you know oh it's a fish you know and through the season i'd see that fish over let's say in the Peague and east hampton and everything else so wow that's sort of cool he's but i saw that fish for years you know the next year he'd be back and then the next year he'd be back again a little bigger you know and it's oh, how like cool. you know and that's why i thought these you know they, they all migrate through but these are the hampton's fish these are the guys that stick around in these estuaries and you know this is their house kind yeah. of like a
0: salmon going up the same river that the he was born right. to spawn
2: yeah i remember a couple of years ago we were fishing down the ocean here fly fishing and we saw that big old tarpon with that massive you know, silver Sabeel lure coming down his face going south. And the next day he was coming back north. Remember right, that? Right. Yeah.
0: Periodically, same... you'll you'll see that fish that's got a scar or something that he's dragging. But let's go to really a, a happy uh, chapter of your life with the Pirates Party, with all uh-huh. your pals and, and the big party that you had with all these famous uh, anglers and guides. Yeah, so... uh in the early Flats days, and John and
1: I are out there and we're talking on the phone every day and, you know, we're, you know, discovering stuff and looking at stuff and tides and trying to figure it out. And, and it's, it's great, you know, it's like, wow. And one day John says, you know, we should try to get Lefty up here to see this stuff, you know. And I said, yeah, and I think Popovics had come with me, you know so uh and maybe kursione too but anyway so john had met lefty in new zealand i believe and and you know just knew him sort of briefly through that and became friends and because of the chronicles lefty knew about the walker's K chronicles and stuff and so uh so it, it turns around and, and I said, well, you know, Lefty, you know, why don't you call him? And I didn't, I, I knew of Lefty and I saw him at all the shows, but I'm not the type of guy that, you know, I, I could never, go, hi, Lefty, how are you? How do, you know, <laughs> so I'd, I'd observe from, I'd watch him cast and everything else, you know. But, uh, but anyway, so John calls, he says, well, maybe we should call some of his friends and invite them too so that he's more inclined to come. So I said, "All right, well, I'll call Bob and Nick and those guys and everything." So he calls Lefty, and uh, and Lefty says, "Let me check my calendar." So it all ends up that Lefty comes back and agrees to do it. Everybody, you know, says we're going. So for five years, we did this thing called the Pirates Party, and everybody started coming to it you know all our friends and everything jeffrey cardenas from down here and gordy hill gordy hill there. and and john cole and peter matheson and you know all these great writers john alexander great uh, jimmy buffett you know the parties jose I got a you know a funny story where you know uh, one of the guys Sean McCarthy had this beautiful house you know that he built and he was one of my earliest uh you know clients and everything else and he built a house that looked like a Maine hunting lodge because he was from Maine he says I want to throw the party you know so okay so we all are going over there and this is the year uh, Jose shows up with a girl that he's dating at the time you know and Jose doesn't I met Jose through a show and sort of another funny story but you know but he comes up and and he's going to do this and lefties and so we start filing into you know the people are just starting to show and Jimmy Buffett shows up first and Sean's got this beautiful back bar and Jimmy comes and Paul what's happening and he doesn't you know really know anybody but Jimmy and I go to the back of the bar we're sitting there talking about mutual friends and you know and some of the stuff that he's been doing and Jimmy loves to fish and so uh so we we sit there and the next thing it piles in with people and and uh, jose doesn't know anybody so he comes up, hey paul how are you doing and i said oh jose hi sue how are you doing I, this is jim jim jose so we sit there talking for 20 minutes everybody's having drinks it's the four of us and we're as close as you and i and all of a sudden susan turns around and says hey paul i hear jimmy buffett's supposed to be here where is he and I turn around and Jimmy starts laughing <laughs> and I, I point I go, right there. Right there. <laughs> and, and Jose had just chimed in, like, Yeah, Paul, where is he? <laughs> but Jimmy didn't have his hat on, you know, right. he was balding yeah. and they just you know, and talking about Jose's like Oh wow. <laughs> you know, just a funny story. But it was a great group of guys, you know. I mean, it it turned into this such a fun learning experience. Ed Javorowski, who's a tremendous, you know, wrote the books with Lefty. And- the casting. Yeah. yeah, you know, just all these guys that, you know, the Glenn Mickelson, the great guys of fly tires, Joe Blados, who did the crease fly, uh, Brian and Sarah Horsley, you know, from the Carolinas, all these friends that, you know, just said, man, this sounds like fun, let's do it. And Lefty was blown away the first year. That's what really sealed it. He couldn't believe it. He said, you know, I, I've fished all over for everything and i've fished for stripers but i've never sight fished for them and this is great do you think we could do this next year again sure you know so that's what started it and so for five years it was just this epic great gathering of some of the the great names in fly fishing you know
0: how did it ever dissolve the fishery? The fishery went away, and then everybody stopped it was, coming.
1: It was really expensive for John and I, you know, because and and we got all the guides or anybody that had a boat and you know and all these right. guys to do it because it grew, you know. And, and next thing you know, you got you know twenty five people and you got 10, 15 boats and you're putting guides and you're putting people up and you it's like know a Woodstock. Yeah, I mean it, and and it was great, but then you know scheduling. Stuff, stuff lefty how did he go here this would happen right. here and you know and so it slowly faded i don't think it it faded so much for the fishery you know because just, it, it the was party just party got too big yeah just you know
2: and this is totally different from the TV show you had on ESPN, correct? The Guide's House? or No, this is just a party they had called yeah. The Pirate's Party. Yeah, right. we just
1: called it The Pirate's Party, you know, and just great friends having fun. And there's actually uh, our friend Richie had an old tape that he had shot. I hadn't seen that thing, you know. Right. And it was like, oh, my God. And we all look so young. <laughs> well, I was going
2: to say, you fished with all these legendary guides like Lefty, C- Lefty Cray and Jimmy Buffett and but. Like, what is it like to spend the day on the water with Roger Waters, the biggest rock and roll star of all time?
1: You know, Roger, I love Roger. I I, I think he's a, a genuinely caring human being. You know, he really, he's doing some great stuff in some other areas and everything else. He's very outspoken. You know, he has his views and everything. But he's a good angler. He's passionate about it. Uh and he's he's a fun guy, you know. And I asked him once. This is a pretty cool story. I said, I said, so Roger, how did you ever get into fly fishing? And he says, Well, mate, I'll tell you what. When when Eric Clapton was in my band, my band, you know, in the early eighties, you know, and um, and he keeps asking me. He says, Oh, you got to come fly fishing. And so you know, he, he's like fly fishing what the hell do you know what are you talk so he kept bugging him you know and finally Roger says I acquiesced and said okay let's go fly fishing so uh so they go up to the Tess River and everything else and and he says so I get up there and and uh it, we put the rods together and Eric hands me this rod he says okay now I'm going to show you see this this is how you do it And he goes like that. And Roger's like, okay. And he says, okay, see you later. And he walks upstream, he says, you know. And so he says, I sat there and all of a sudden, you know, I thought, all right, what the hell, you know, and stuff. And he said, I caught a grayling. And he said, then I caught two. And by the third one, I'm like, I fucking like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so that's how he started fly fishing. And he ended up buying this place on the test. And by this time, he said he was, you know, he kept driving by this place. that was beautiful. And, and just like, man, that's the place I want, you know, that if I ever, you know, one day he hears it's for sale. And so he goes up and with his ghillie and he knocks on the door and, you know, says, I hear your place is for sale. It's like Lord something, something. And he said, by this time, you know, Pink Floyd is going strong. We're making some you know bucks. And so the guy says, oh, no, I'm sorry. You've got this wrong. You know, this isn't for sale. He said, well, mate, if you were going to sell it, how much would you want? He said, well, it's not for sale. But, you know, I couldn't get any less than, you know, like 350,000 pounds. He says, I'll give you 400,000 (laughs) pounds. I says, okay. (laughs) Money talks. Yeah. Um, But Rogers helped a lot with BTT. Uh, You know, he's a... He's a good cat like I said, he's just he's a good guy, I really like Roger and the stories, you know, you can imagine, yeah, you know, sure. the times. And he's so talented. You yeah. know, he invited me to go to uh, when he did the wall, you know, the the movie and everything else. And explained a lot of his philosophy in life because he'd lost his his uh father and his grandfather in wars, you know, so uh so the wall was sort of his rendition of of this tragedies and 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 how you know everything came about but uh but it was a hell of a party because he's like mate we're gonna have this potty afterwards you, you know it was fun you yeah know?
0: So he's- um tell me about a lefty story you know possibly the most famous fly fisherman one of our greatest grandfathers other than joe brooks and a few others but lefty is lefty you yeah. got a great lefty story for us you know uh
1: if I probably had long enough to think about it, but uh and and I hate to because Lefty uh you know, is such a great but one of the things I remember is Bob Popovic's filming one day and I'm polling and Lefty's on the front and everything else. And uh and so I tell him I said, Lefty you got a fish coming about fifty feet out at eleven o'clock. And so he whips the rod up and it something happened, whether the the fly caught something. And the whole fly line comes up and it lands on top of him and it's around him. And, and, and both Bob and I, Bob's filming. And, and both of them looked like, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> but, but Bob, to this day, that included that film, and Lefty loved that because. It was like it happens to the best of them, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. And so, you know, I and and Lefty was was like he, Bob. You got to put that in there, you know. He was the, real. Yeah, he, he was, was just,
0: real. No ego. He was just the bomb yeah. in so many ways, and
1: and just you know the stuff about how he ate. You know, every day he'd take a nap. You know, every day on the,
0: a boat, on the boat, or on ground.
1: That's right. He he was like, okay, time for my. Na-. He'd take a twenty minute nap but uh it was like what <laughs> wait <laughs> oh, what happen? you know but he just did that he would not eat. He'd, he'd do peanut butter and jelly or whatever and his meat had to be and maybe this because of the war i don't know he was afraid but it had to be black burnt burnt you know and no green he, he, no green no green no green, no green. So, no so. green. No greens. you know i mean it was just lefty was lefty yeah. and i told lefty years ago you know i said you know You should write a joke book, you know, because nonstop one liners. Yes. And and I think, you know, I started thinking about this later after he died and everything else because he had so many prolific jokes and everything. But, you know, Lefty was in the Battle of the Bulge. And I think that that sitting in those foxholes, it was joke time. And that those guys in my dad's era too, you know, and everything else, the jokes, the one-liners and everything else, I think that that was a way of coping maybe with the war because boy, he, he it was endless. Yeah. He, he would go on and on. And he was funny as, you know, was I mean, crazy.
0: it was unreal. How did you get to the Keys? You know, we were talking a little bit earlier, you're Southern California, the Northeast with the stripers, and you've got a great presence down here uh, in the lower keys when did you start coming down and how did you uh how did you get here you know that's a that's another good one
1: so uh so orvis i guess had you know they were going to start a, at the ocean reef stuff start a, a thing and so uh so they came down and told the guy that was opening the store you know, that they should maybe, you know, because he was going to revamp all the guides. There was a lot of old guides at the ocean reef, a lot of guys that were retired, you know, so he was going to change it and and the fly fishing was going to come to focus and all this. So Orvis said, you ought to call this guy because he's got this clientele and everything else. So the guy's name was Bruce Miller. And Bruce called me, he was opening up the shop. He was a member of the reef and the anglers club over there. And he said, would you consider coming down here? And I said, uh, I don't know, I don't really know the keys. He said, I'll show it to you, don't worry. you know. But if you'll bring the clients, this is the deal. And I said, well, let me come down and talk to you. Well, at the same time, weirdly enough, I'm filming the Walker's K Chronicles with Flip. And so, uh, so I turned around and I said, hey Flip, do you know this guy, Bruce Miller? And he said, uh, he said yep. I said, what do you think of him? And he said, nobody knows it better. And I thought, wow, that's pretty, but that's all he said, you know? So I came down and uh, and they were revamping the guides. So the guides that he had chose, he had this little meeting first was Dwayne Baker, myself, Andy Thompson, Dave Wiss was there and I forget. So that was pretty, and he had this little meeting. And as you know, Two of the greatest guides going is Andy Thompson and Dwayne Baker. Yep, yeah, absolutely, know, without I mean, question. The, it's just off the charts good. And Andy and I, Dwayne, I still see Dwayne quite a bit and everything. Andy and I are really good friends because I've known Andy since he was, and he lived down the street from Flip and everything. So, so you know, so they said, would you come down? Would you do this and everything? So, So I agreed to, you know, to come on down the thing that got me and it and it's funny because at the same time that bruce says i'll show you everything so i go to walkers and there's a guy over there uh bob uh, bob rogers and he's an isla Morada guy the old like who you know hold your hands up you know take no shit or whatever right. and john had had him come over to the island to help him with their program a little bit and oversee and everything else well Bob ends up going back to the Keys, and and he turns around and hears. And I tell Bob this. He says, "Aren't you a little afraid of people, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah, I sort of." He said, "They're gonna hate you. They're gonna hate you. I'm gonna hate you." You know. And I said, "Well." He said, "Who who asked you to do this?" I said, "Bruce Miller." He said, "So how are you supposed?" To? I said, "Bruce said he's gonna show me, the, you know, some stuff." He says, "Can I go with you?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so, <laughs> That's really funny. so he does and the day we go it's just muddy as shit you, you can't see anything so we drive all the way from the ocean reef all the way up to the raggeds and boca chica and all the way down you can't see nothing right i'm like what he goes yeah there's a big bank here there's a big it's just foam, you know, and he's in this, he's in a bay boat or some bigger boat or something, right. you know, and uh, and so we get back and he hands me one of those old, you know, aerial shots. In those days, there's no Google Earth or something. It's like an air, and he says, there you go, and I'm like, okay. That's, sh- that's showing me the keys? That <laughs> <laughs> was it, but, you know, the thing that got me was, the thing that I was really afraid of was the other guys, you know, so if I saw somebody, I didn't go near him. You know, and I, I knew who Bob Branham was. I you know, I I knew the guides. I'd heard that they were my idols, you know. It was like holy shit you know, I used to ask like Bruce, you know, who who's the best guy down here? Branham. Yeah. you know and was Mark bill Curtis Proko.
2: was Bill Curtis guiding at the time
1: yes and i i knew bill pretty well got to know bill over the you know the years especially because he got involved with BTT right. and we used to and i've got bill curtis stories too but <laughs> you know but i was afraid and so i didn't want to see anybody i didn't want to Piss anybody off i didn't want to go near him, you know, and that was the thing. Andy Thompson lasted i think a year or something that he wanted to go on his on his own, and Andy and I fished a lot together, you know we just if we had a day off or whatever right. we were fishing you know and Andy. When he when he quit the reef and everything else, he started spending a lot of time in the Everglades, and I would go to the Everglades with you know with Andy, you know that was our time, you sure. know to fish and you know goof around, and that's the thing down here. It was through time. It was the friendships of the people that accepted, you know. Finally, you know, mm-hmm. Bob Rich helped a lot with that because I met Bob and everything else, and and uh, we started fishing a little together. I met Borsky before Bob, and and Borsky and I hooked up right away.
0: You knew Borsky before Borsky became Borsky. That's right. <laughs>
1: you know, and Tim, I just I just loved him. I mean, they yes, broke the mold for sure. You know, and we had some times. I mean. It, it, a lot of them were good drinking times, <laughs> but uh, but you know I mean I remember going to the Everglades with Borsky and uh, and a couple of six packs and a pair of clippers, you know because we were going to go to you know clip our way into the, the jungle, you know, and uh, it just great times. And Borsky you know was like let's go try this or let's go here, you know, and and so some of those early friendships, you know, and then the red Redbone red bone when it started that's how i met you know craig brewer and and all these you know rusty Auberry and uh you know it just goes and and the friendships and that was the thing that was really cool was that i never had confrontations i stayed away from everybody but once you sort of got accepted and you know it was like all right you know and, right. and the friendships developed, you know, Justin Ray down here, Will Benson, and I've known these guys for years, you know, and, you know, it's like, you don't. We fish together. We'll do, you know do a lot of stuff, but I I respect places. I ain't going back there. Right. You know. It's you, know like,
0: who, you know who likes to fish in a certain area. Yeah.
1: You know. So it's like uh, I you know that mm-hmm. that's great stuff. We had a great time there and everything else. And to me, the the fun is the hunt. You know, it's 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 going out and figuring it out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of the okay. You know, here's the spot. But Steve Huff told me years ago. You know. Uh, I, a couple of things you know we're talking and he said you know i try to look at a new spot every day you know every day i want to go out and just look at it. and i thought you know that's they,
0: pretty good they just don't tell their anglers the next hour is a spot they've never seen <laughs> harry told me that yeah. as well yeah. every day was allocated towards finding something different yeah especially in the early years because Everything's new, but once you get better, you still need to, uh, you know, develop uh, your your arsenal, if you will. Yeah,
1: it's like Flip. I asked Flip. I said, Flip, if you and this is when we were filming the Chronicles in '95 or '96, whatever it was. And I said, Flip, if you had one, you know, suggestion, you know, or one thing that you, you know, think is important, you know, in guiding or whatever, you know, what what would it be? And he sat there and he thought and he said don't run in the fish's house. Right. And and I really, I thought, that is so true. And, and I have a big pet peeve about it now. And up north, a lot, right. you know, because the fish that I'm looking for up north and the stripers and everything, in order to get the big fish on a fly, I am going into areas really like, I, I've got it on my contender, if I'm going after big fish, I've got a little, you know, it's like a, drive so i just click it and now it's just barely moving but it's like kind of like a trolling, trolling motor motor it's yeah. like a trolling motor speed so i'll go i might have to go a half a mile into those these areas with it i had guys recently like, why don't you just go right it's like dude you know he's like my guy the uh, weed just go into these you know it's like no you gotta you sneak in here right. to, you know how many big fish you catch with that guy <laughs> well no I never caught any well that's
0: why why. how how would the swordfish um put up with those stick boats uh running up on top of them and throwing harpoons into their backs
1: well first of all they were spotted by planes usually but the boat is still motoring
0: up on that fish i think the motor would scare uh, a big swordfish.
1: Well, I think a lot of times they're literally, you know, almost in swordfish sleeping mode. Oh, okay. You know, so they, they would chug up, you know, they'd glide into him. You know, they'd Slowly. see the approach. And the and the plane oftentimes is telling them, okay, he's right in front of you at 11 o'clock, turn forward, here he could, you know, and they could see the fin or whatever. But, they, you know, it's just a night. Nice, and the thing that you find out, and, and Bruce, you know, Miller, who – you know, blesses. I I don't like the way that he fishes. You know, it, it, with the trolling motors and everything else, it's not my style. Right. Know? But uh, but he used to tell me, you can't turn it off if you're doing an engine, a trolling motor, or anything else. As long as the sound stays constant, you're fine. You're fine. You're right. The minute you turn it off, or you change things, or switch gears, or do something, then that's when they're going
0: to spook because the change. Right. Tell me about the time you sank a boat. (laughs) (laughs) I knew this
1: one. Well, you didn't sink it, but the ocean did. (laughs) Wasn't me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so... uh, Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I, you know, I listened to uh, Harry Spear talking, you know, his his accident, too, that we've all had. I don't think you can be out there not, you know, one time or another after all these years that you're not going to have, you know, things. That's the C. But uh, so one day I've got two writers, two very well-known writers, Phil Caputo and uh, John Katzenbach. And Phil Caputo is, you know, wrote the rumors of war and, you know, really, really good fishermen, really good guys. And and uh, and so we're sitting, we come around the point and everything else, and there's a blitz of bass taking place on a beach in front of us, you know, but they're too tight. So I sit there and I said, you guys, those fish will probably come out of here. Let's just sit.
0: It's too shallow up in there. Well, too it's tight. too
1: shallow and it's rocky and it's, yeah. it's too tight. It's, yeah. you know. So uh, I said, we'll just sit here, you know, and wait, you know, see if they'll come out. So uh, so we're sitting there, and they're on the front talking and everything else, and, and I'm on the back, and I always keep the, the boat, or I'll, I'll touch it to reverse, because we're just looking at it. And we're sitting way outside. The surf is inside, you know, it's breaking, so we're sitting there and everything. And and, uh, and the next thing, I know I'm, I'm turning around like this, and out of the corner I see this this swell coming it's like what the you know so i I put it in reverse and i'm like what is is this thing gonna i said hey you guys hold on you know and the next thing this swell comes up behind me and it just crests and it breaks in the back of the boat and i'm like holy jesus you know and it didn't you know it wasn't like we just but it filled the back of the boat with with water you know and so at that point I'm like okay I think we're okay because you know I'm I'm trying to get you a know, move forward and get get But it it was a sea craft, and sea craft has their scuppers at the very bottom of the boat. And as I learned later, they call them sink crafts. So so anyway,
0: so... So the scupper, tell people what a scupper is. A a scupper
1: is the drain in the back of the boat, the two holes that if you get water in the boat, they come back out. Most scuppers are out of the side or whatever. Sea crafts are are down, way down low. So if the weight of the boat... You Has know, gets underwater. Yeah. now the scuppers are underwater and the water's going no place and if anything depending it's going to come in so uh so the water starts coming in and the boat slowly just starts rolling you know and we're like you gotta be kidding me and it just will rolls over and so you know we're all fine you know everything's floating You know, and we basically swim to shore, you know. Oh, God. Well, so it ends up that there's a hurricane off of Bermuda that, you know, nobody was aware that the hurricane sends out these swells. And they lost five boats that day. You know, the Block Island people were anchored, you know, having their sun, and they totally ended up on the rocks and inside. So... It was not a- rogue
2: wave. (laughs) A rogue wave. Nikki, tell them about our rogue wave. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, you got flipped off a boat on a rogue wave. Yeah, we
0: were shark fishing near Palm Beach when the black tip uh, spinner sharks were in shallow water, the migration. So we would chum them up uh, with bait and throw flies at these spinner sharks. So I've got a trolling motor on the bow of my egret. And I'm sitting on the phone up on the bow. Beautiful day. And uh, there's a bunch of bait guys up on the shore, maybe trying to catch pompano and they're pissed because we're probably a little bit too close, right? But all the sharks are in this trough. So I'm on the trolling boat, or on the bow, and we're waiting to chum up a fish, right? And Nikki's in the back of the boat, and I'm on my phone, looking towards the shore, looking for sh- sharks, and all of a sudden Nikki goes, look out! And I turn around, and the wall of water was like up here, and I was under
2: underwater, like that. You, you did know? a backflip. I remember I you did a backflip. Fl- the wave crashed. It was all white water. The boat
0: sideways. Nikki almost got launched.
2: Yeah, and I'm I- the wave crash and it's after the you know, the whole debacle, and I'm just looking for my dad and all I hear is
0: <laughs> <laughs> i knew it was his head in the my hole head. of the boat i come up and hit my head in the, in the hole but i got a big cut in my chin mm. and i get up thank god the boat didn't flip and i heard this noise i look over and all the guys on the beach are
2: clapping <laughs> 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 yeah! and then we go yeah! to the, we go to the hospital because you had to get stitches in your chin i remember I, the, I, guy, I, the, the guy the guy called you back who was on the phone with you and you go what happened to you? It sounded like you went underwater. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm driving down the road with a big old hole in my chin, a big old flap. I'm just going to rip this fucking thing off, you know. <laughs> and Nicky's going, no, no, no. <laughs> but um, as we close uh, out this great conversation, um, you were telling me at one point uh, during this podcast, you were at a point where you were not really sure you were going to make it past 30. Tell me about that time and how you got out of it.
1: Oh, <laughs> I thought I was out of it. <laughs> um, you know, I, if you grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s and everything else, um, you know, it was sort of a counterculture time, you know. And, and you know, the, the Vietnam War was going on, uh, you know, uh, drugs came about, hippie, you know, the whole thing. And at a very early age, of course, you know everybody you know, you know, was involved with you know drugs and our you know it's it sort of mushrooms and the people that on the water and the the you know, if you were fishing and you were on the water surfing or doing this and that, everything else, it was almost like an evolution and everybody, you know, myself included or whatever. I started at a very young age of getting, you know involved with what they call now is the cannabis industry <laughs> but uh and it just you know i mean it was sort of a, a progression you know and and you know we used our uh, boating skills and flying and everything else and and that's you know sort of what uh, what happened i spent half my time in mexico you know uh fishing but doing other things and so
0: you know, it was just sort of that era. Right. But but as far as alcoholism and drug stuff like that, you personally, too, said, I'm just going to wipe my hands clean of everything.
1: Yes. I, I, That's I,
0: what I was worried about. Not so much getting hit, uh, running drugs, and getting killed that way, but maybe just ending up... Uh, Drinking well, too much, and all of a sudden you're you toast. There,
1: there was no doubt. You know, my family had a, a history of alcoholism. You know, and so, uh, you know, Nathaniel, you know, is a really good friend. I've known him before he started down here in Connecticut and everything else. And we all have our demons and our, you know, and in my family, alcoholism was one of them. And I almost burned my whole career down. And I and I see it now because. Uh, with a lot of other guides and everything because it's very easy you, you know it's a it's such a great sport and there's such great camaraderie and you you know it's after you know the day on the water and you want to talk about it and you want to party with your friends and you know and and it it gets into a vicious cycle at least it did for me right and so uh so I got to a point where you know the drinking was just out of control you know I was a full-blown you know uh, j- you know, it just, it was nasty. And finally, uh, you know, I got to to a point where a couple of incidents happened, you know, DWI and everything else, and it was a wake-up call. And I just couldn't you know, it was like that's it. I I can't do this anymore. I wish I'd done it much earlier in life, you know, mm-hmm. and figured it out then, you know.
0: It's, but at least you got it when you did.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, it's and and I like I said, I have friends and everything else that are young guides and everything, and I sort of see the same thing, you know, it's 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 so easy to get into that you know fish party fish party fish party until it wears you down and then it's like oh boy it's you too know? Late. yeah so yeah. you know it's the best thing i ever did you know like i said i just wish i've you know
0: yeah, but maybe your friends just don't like you as much anymore. Well, they don't. How <laughs> I many t- I mean, friends did you lose when you stopped drinking? You know, it's funny because... Where'd jo- they go?
1: <laughs> Joe Blatos, who invented the crease flyer or whatever, yeah. is a dear friend. I've known him since those days of the Pirates Party and everything. Every time I see Joe, he's like, you drinking yet?
0: <laughs> I, say, I say, no, Joe. He's like... Damn it, you were so much fun. <laughs> uh, as we wrap this up, you've been a, a, you've had a great relationship uh, with conservation. You know, not only with the striped bass, but in raising money uh, to help these fish stay alive and keep swimming and, and preserve what you know and what you care about. Um, tell me about the time and when we were working together when you were honored with the Isaac Walton Award this last year, and I was hosting the event. I asked you, when did you first realize that you were connected uh, with conservation and the preservation of fish? And you told me about your father um, when you were a very young man. Can you um, retell that story?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I tell people, the uh, everybody says, you know, the worst thing you want to hear is, the, oh, boy, you should have been here yesterday. And and as I tell people, no, that's not it. The worst story that you want to hear is... is uh, I remember when, and I remember when my father going out of the Harbor, you know, in Newport beach. And I was probably 10, 12 years old or whatever. And he turned around and he said, I remember when I used to catch long fin albacore off those jetties, you know, at that time we were going a hundred miles to get them, you know. So, you know, for me, I, I just got involved with the conservation and everything because it was necessity. It was like, okay, this is, if you wanted to, you know, so it's like, I don't, that's stupid. These laws that they're making there, you know, this is crazy, you know? And I, and I wanted to help. It's like the, you know, American saltwater guides association, you know, I just joined with these guys, like-minded anglers three years ago. And they said, look, we need a new voice. You know, the striped bass is getting crushed it's 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 absurd what's happening and the governing body that governs each state gets a representative that governs the you know the states and what happens to the stripers you know it's it's political and everybody is conflicted because one state wants the commercial fisher we got to be able to kill him the other one is you know so there's you know there's no cohesive so the, like the Guides Association, idea was is there needs to be another voice heard, and the other voice is of the people that want more fish in the water. You know that w- enjoy catching them, and and it's not saying that you can't necessarily kill them, but let's have a a, a robust stock. You know, let's not kill them to oblivion until we're in trouble again, which is I never thought that i would see the striped bass collapse like it has you know i thought man look at this the greatest conservation success story of all time and now we're back to 20 it, years later
0: same thing it's time. amazing how people can allow that to happen it's just
1: mind boggling i mean to they me. saved it i know and then they allowed it to die again it, and it's you know it's the it's like the captains for clean water you know it's finally we've had enough You know, and who doesn't get clean water? Richard Nixon was the one that put in the Clean Water Act and the, you know, the things like, hey, instead of dumping in rivers, maybe we should think about this. Well, look at, you know, these families, these two families in in Florida that control the sugar industry. And then you think, like, how much is enough? How right. much money do you need? You know, I mean, you're destroying what everybody comes to Florida for. The reef is dead. The Everglades is dying. The rivers are channeled. The, you know, and it's like, when is it enough? Or do, right. you know, And now people, because of what's happening with the channels and pumping and, and seeing algae blooms in their backyard... Now they're starting to say, well, wait a second here. Maybe there's something to be said. And so for me, you know, I want my kids. You know, I don't want to be like my dad and say, I remember when. You know, to me it's all about the uh, you know, what our future is. It's you, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's Nikki and my son Austin and Andrew, you know, that love to fish and get it, you know. They're the guys that are, you know, the, the upcoming generation. And maybe they'll fix it but I'm sure gonna try to have something for them to keep fixing, right. you know? So to me, it's just, it comes hand in hand. You can't love the outdoors, and you can't love what mother nature gave you without getting involved, you know? And, and if you're not, you better, because it's not gonna be there. There's too many, you know, and I hate saying this, because, you know, everybody used to talk about population control not anymore they don't maybe it's not political correct or what i don't know you know but the world you know the population is exploding and everybody wants to use the resources and and there's nothing wrong with that as long as there's something to use right you know and we it's got to be sustainable that's it you know and and it's like you know i i don't want to say hey you know you can't have dirt bikes in the parks or this you know i mean but there's got to be a limit you know there's got to be some boundaries that we start setting if we want to preserve this thing let alone what's going on with climate change right you know i mean there's a lot of problems but you know and that's why i just have to get involved you know because it's like okay i'm gonna fight it maybe you know it's going nowhere i don't know you know but at least in
0: at least you're in the
1: fight. I, at least in my heart, I know I tried, and yeah. that's the the important thing.
2: So yeah. up in the northeast right now with Stripe bass, are you guys pushing for another moratorium? Well, I would love it. I wish they would have never opened
1: it in the first place back in you know in ninety whatever. I wish that it had just stayed moratorium forever because it would be unbelievable, you know but uh, but yes, I would like to see a moratorium. but politically it's very hard. Because and this is what the, the Guides Association is, is trying to do, is work this political thing and get people involved. Because like there's an Amendment 7 coming up that's going to determine what's going to happen with stripers. And if any angler isn't out there that's fishing for stripers and doesn't go on this public comment that is happening over the next six months until April... Then, you know, don't when the fish disappear, which they are. You know, I had a conversation at six o'clock this morning on a conference call with these guys that are up in Massachusetts and all these different. There is no bass. You know, that comes for a short time, they're gone. You know and it's like you have to get involved or it's going to disappear and and there's too many conflicting the politics of it so when you say one of the great things like brad burns a great guy that you know started stripers forever 25 years ago or whatever you know it's a great concept you know let make it a game fish and i would i would love to make it a game fish But in reality, because of the way that the states are structured and this governing organization is put together, the politics—they won't even talk to you. You know, if you say, "Oh, we're going to make it a a game fish," you know, and I hope it's that's where it goes. But at this point in this juncture in time, it's it's the little steps that we can do you know the to get involved with at least let the public know that there's a problem Mm -hmm. because when you see if you're at montauk at the blitzes you don't think there's a problem it's like look at all these fish you go to new york and new jersey when all the fish end up down in front of new york and new jersey and there's ten thousand boats out there trying to get these fish there doesn't seem to be a problem. Look at all these big fish. But it, it's they're just in areas. You're seeing the body of the fish that re- represents the whole east coast in that one area. Yeah. yeah. And that's
0: well, the there's a great adage, I don't know where it came from, but it's uh there are none so blind than those who will not see. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's what breaks my heart because if you stand back and take a look from afar, it's pretty friggin' obvious how badly they're messing up. Yeah, but people have got their foot in uh, commercial fishing and the killing and the recreational guys. They want to kill. It's like, hey, less is more. More is not more. Well,
1: but it's the price tag. Yeah, it's the minute all money. you put a price tag on something. It's over,
0: like your uh, like the sugar and the water with, in South Florida. Yeah, you know what they're di- battling right now up in Tallahassee. Same thing.
1: Yeah, the, and the, the you know the politicians and they're being bought out by money and everything else. The thing that they just this uh, what was it uh, the. Uh, the thing that they tried to pass through yesterday, the captains, everybody raced to Tallahassee. Right. You know, it's a travesty. They're trying to stick some. Oh, let's sort of reward this and get it through quickly and
0: and steal six hundred million dollars from what uh, was it, supposed to be account- uh, accounted for. Yeah, you know, and allocated to preserving them. You know, you know what we it's, need it's, uh, with the Florida. Florida water and the Everglades and the preservation of all the, the birds and the alligators and the wildlife and the fish and the water quality as you mentioned
1: and you got to think what is the corruption how did that come about who tried to do this right. what is who's the guy behind the door that's saying hey sneak this in here so we can you know get you know forget that because. We got to uh, we got to build up there. We got to yeah. you know grow more sugar, whatever it is. You know the politics and the you know the sort of the corruption and what money can buy. You know as far as like hey, and and I get it. You know people, it's their livelihoods. Commercial. I don't have anything against commercial fishing. We all eat fish and everything mm-hmm. else, but you know, the
0: sustainability is going to be a balance. That's right. It's got to be sustainable.
1: That's got to be, you know, when you know, you know, and they'll tell you, well, those scientists don't know anything. I got plenty of fish and everything. Well, you know, then let's have some scientists on your boat. You know, mm-hmm. listen, you know, there's, there's ways to do this, but if we all work together as, you know, as concerned, you know, stakeholders, then we can all make a difference. But as I told this, this hearing last year, you know, I got lots of friends that are commercial fishing and are working on for hire boats and everything else, you know? But, you know, it's all about the fish. And if there is no fish, we all don't have a right. job.
0: So, you know, it's interesting in that fishery up there, it's about catch and kill. Whereas down here in South Florida, the water quality is killing the habitat, all the dead grass, uh, all the algae yeah. blooms. So the fish has no longer a house that he can live in. You know, so it's not only lo- we're losing fish; we're losing the environment. Yeah. You know, and and it's, and it's affecting people that are not involved with fishing. And that's the same I, thing in the
1: Chesapeake, right? That's what's happening it's, there.
0: It's a bigger game than just fish. That's it's, right. It's our. It's South Florida. Yeah. Four hundred billion people, our dollars are 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 generated through fishing in the in the Florida Keys. That's crazy. 450, yeah, four and fifty billion, or is it million? It's I think billion. A billion. Yeah,
1: it's you know from the tourism trade to the you know to the tackle sold, the boats, the the, right. the you know the guides, the businesses. It, it's just like in the Northeast. You know, we we had the film hardlined You know, and it and it points that like look at all this. When I first went to Montauk, it was John Applinap's dad's boat and myself. The all the slips were empty. There was nobody... Because there was no stripe ass, You know, so there was no... They were fishing, you know, the commercial boats or whatever. They're fishing fluke or they're fishing porgies or whatever. When the striper came back this year in Montauk, the prices have skyrocketed. For Real them, estate, yeah. You know, because the striper... You know, brought everything back. All those boat sales and all these manufacturers and everything else. It's the striped bass, and it's driving all those local economies, just like it is here in the Keys, just like it is in the west or East Coast of Florida. Right. It's the fishing and the recreation and the environment that's bringing the people. So why
0: are you burning it down? You know what? And I'm gonna I'm gonna end this here shortly. It's just like the cruise ships in Key West. Yeah. My God. It, take a step back and take a look at the mass destruction. It's crazy. To this paradise. And don't let me
1: get going on cruise ships. Oh, because, I know. Because, man, I've, I know. I've been a fighter of cruise ships since the days that I used to travel to yeah. Bali and, you know, back in the 70s and stuff. Well, that's
0: know? another podcast. But yeah. for now, I want to wrap this up. <laughs> because uh there's so much more to say and so much more to cover because your life is so your spectrum is just outrageous and uh i can't tell you how much uh appreciative i am of not only our friendship but what kind of contribution you've given to the sport and to conservation and that's why you are so profoundly uh acknowledged and respected
1: well that's uh, i really very appreciate very kind words andy I'd- you know, new, you and Nikki, Nikki Poons. <laughs> <laughs> Polly Poons. <laughs> I, I love you guys. You know, I've, I mean, we've had some quality time together. You and I met years back and everything else. So we've really had some great adventures. And, and, uh, and the fishing, to me, this whole sport is uh, the people you meet and the camaraderie. You know, I mean, that's the best of it, right. because it's the passion and the sharing of that passion that it, it's the kind. I can't wait. You know, it's like going to Harker's Island. You know, it was like this gathering, guys. It was like the Pirates Party. It was like the motherships that we've done together. Sure. You know, it's all these, you know, these adventures and these people that you've grown to to love and, and that share this passion. To me, that's what makes my heart glad. Hmm.
0: You the know. fish, are, the fish are the byproduct. Yeah, I mean, it's a great time.
1: It, it, absolutely, you know, and it's getting. But out we're there
0: because of the fish, obviously. But it's such a great um, combination of heartfelt friendship and a great fish that we're chasing around the world. And take a look at fishing and how big it is. Oh, people want to be fishing. Fish live in great houses all around the world. Yep. So. God, we have to just, I think, take a step back where where it's fragile, and try to think how we can make it sustainable
2: and save everything. Yeah, amen. And bring awareness With to the so issues.
1: S indeed. Like <laughs> I love Thank you, dude. I love you too, man. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thanks dude! So much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you guys. So, so great. Thank uh, you so much. You
2: betcha.
0: <laughs> From this conversation, it's obvious why Paul is a voice of reason. We all know a lot about the issues surrounding many aspects of our sport, but Paul is a living example who dove headfirst into the fire and inspired change, and in doing so, inspired many others who are now stepping up to the plate. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.